I taught them how to do that. No, I, I didn't, and I'm so envious they can do that. Isn't that fun? That was great. I love that. All right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to somebody, and I want you to tell them the snapshot of Christmas or the holidays. So I want you to tell them the room you're in, the people you envision yourself with. Describe that scene for them really quick. Go. All right, did anybody mention food? Yeah. Did anybody mention food first before anything else? Just me? Okay, good. All right, good. Yeah, before we get into that, because we want to talk about that and what, what our hopes and why that picture makes so much sense to us and want to talk about uh, that and why that may be an indication of some of our deepest needs and desires in life. We're going to talk about that today. Uh, but first, we're going to get back to God. And as we're giving back to God, these buckets, uh, that's what they're for. I was uh, watching a few months ago and somebody sitting on the front row, a first-time guest, got the bucket and went and looked around and just put their empty coffee cup in there. I thought we were collecting, <laughs> collecting trash. But anyway, at least it wasn't on the floor. So that's good. So, um, so if you're a guest, don't worry about it. Just pass it by. But if you're a regular Thanks for your, by the way, um, before I forget, uh, you, would you guys like a little update on the, uh, the fundraising for our, our new uh, remodel going on? Yeah, would you like? So here's what's happening. We have over 500 giving units. That could be a single person, could be a family. Um, over 500 have, have either contributed or pledged to contribute. And we're at 1.84. That's amazing. That is incredible. So we're so excited. So you will start seeing some changes around the campus immediately probably, but the long-term construction on the east side term won't begin until we kind of redraw the plans back to the drawing board, kind of do a little more than we were thinking we might be able to do. So we're excited about that'll probably start in the first quarter of the next year. So thank you for your consistency, and, and we will be sending out, <coughs> maybe already sending out updates via email. And if you made a pledge or uh, contributed and you're not getting email, let us know, and uh, we'll make sure that uh, that, that gets corrected. So I thought it'd be interesting, and we'll find out if I was right or wrong. You'll let me know, I'm sure to take um, the Lord's Prayer and kind of juxtapose it over the holidays. So oftentimes we think about prayer as being something we do when we're in trouble. It's the, oh God, I'm in trouble, please help me. But prayer isn't always and shouldn't always be uh, a panic kind of thing or a crisis kind of thing. We're instructed to pray and talk to God just on a daily basis. So the disciples went to Jesus and they said, um, teach us how to pray. Now here's what they weren't saying. They weren't saying we don't know how to pray. They knew how to pray. They just didn't know how to pray like Jesus prayed. What they observed on a regular basis is that Jesus would sneak away to quiet places and pray. And they, I believe, that they had come to the conclusion that the miracles that he did, the wisdom that he, that he taught, um, and his just general uh, impact was greatly related to his prayers. And so what they're saying is teach us to pray like you pray. <laughs> you know, we can go to the temple and we could do prayers. But the question is, how are you praying, and why is that so impactful, and how can we do that? It seems to me that's kind of what they're getting at. So what if we decided that we would, I, so one of my alternative titles for this series was Pray for the Presence, the People, and the Parties. That was it. And nobody bought that one. Anyway, uh, so, um, so how to turn the, the holidays into holy days, I guess, is where we're going with this one. But I do believe that there can be a, a significant spiritual impact, especially this time of year, as we um, go deeper than just parties. 
and there's nothing wrong with parties, uh, most parties, um, and uh, there is a deeper impact. So I want us to kind of dig in and see if we can't see something pretty exciting happen this year at the holiday season. So Lord's Prayer, I'm going to read it in the NIV because when I learned it was in the 1500s, and there's lots of these and thous in the version that I know. It's called the King James. You're familiar? You're okay? Do you need to explain? We're good. Okay. I wasn't really alive in the 1500s. <laughs> Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There's some important things that we learn right off the bat, and I'm going to split this up and, and teach about the Lord's Prayer the next few weeks. And maybe make the application to this time of year because the Lord's Prayer is for all time. And I think it may have uh, direct application, uh, unique application for this time of year. Our Father in heaven. It begins with our Father. By the way, as with the holidays and all of life, um, what, the first thing we're being taught by Jesus here is that life doesn't start with and center around you. Most of us are tempted to start our prayers with, Lord, I need... <laughs> I feel, Lord, today, this is something I'm concerned about, and we are tempted to start our prayers with us. And it starts with our Father, not ourselves. And there's a reason for that. And I would talk about that a lot around here. Uh, but it is such a temptation for us to just back up the dump truck and dump on God whatever it is we're concerned about. But if we do it in that chronology, if we do it in that order, we're not ready to really talk about our issues because we don't have a clear perspective. The reason we start with God, and I believe the reason that Jesus started with our Father, is that we talk about who God is, acknowledge who God is, because God is the solution to whatever it is we want to talk about later. So in the Lord's Prayer, there are six petitions, six requests. <coughs> and only the last three are about us. And before we get to the us part, and the us part is appropriate for prayer, but it's not the first thing we talk about. It begins with our Father. So we begin with talking to God, to remember who we're talking to, to remember that once we recognize who God is, that our um, issues kind of get put in the right perspective, realizing in comparison to God, they may not be as huge as we thought they were when we knelt down to pray or whatever. And so then we begin our father. Well, right after that, we got a problem because we got father. Why does it say father? A lot of some, some modern uh, theologians in certain parts of Christianity believe, well, you should, that should be gender neutral. Well, it's not. It's not in the original language. We don't get to change the Bible just because we want to, okay? And so I want to suggest to you that God is spirit. And so he is neither male nor female or, more accurately, he's probably both because we are created in his image. That means men and women were created in his image. But for some reason, he chose something we understood, a father, to reveal himself to us. And we shouldn't change that just because it's uncomfortable in our society. It doesn't make men better or women better. It's the image he chose. And, and I believe that he chose the father image for some reasons. And so we begin with our father. And... I, what reasons? Well, first of all, let's look at, at, at the time in, Jesus, in which Jesus was speaking. It was, it was a patriarchal society. It was male-dominated. And yes, all of those things. But even in a society that is no longer uh, abiding by those kinds of rules and antiquated thoughts, there are still some things about fathers. There's things about protection. There's things about, historically, certain, certainly provision 
I believe that he does it for a reason. There is an image we're supposed to get. There is a sense we're supposed to get. There's an intuitive understanding about fathers and mothers who, I'm sorry, they do play different roles. I'll expand on that in a moment. And I'm not sorry. I'm sorry if you're offended that I, I'm not sorry that that's true. (laughs) Am I in trouble yet? No, we just got started. I'll get there. Um, Our father, that's a problem for some folks. For those of us who had great dads, um, uh, not certainly not perfect dads, but great dads, that's a warm, fuzzy father. The, the term father is a warm, fuzzy. But there are lots of people where that's not a good, good term. That's not a good feeling. There are lots of folks, it's either an empty feeling, a blank space because they didn't have a father, or it's even worse, it's a negative thing because of what their father did or didn't do in their lives that should have been done. And so we begin with this kind of controversial name for some reasons or for some people. And, but let me just say that having a father in one's life is extremely important. I, I don't care what the popular culture says. Having both parents in one's life is extremely important and for different reasons. And if you doubt that, just look at the percentages of men in prisons who were raised without fathers. It is huge. It is astronomical. It is undeniably, statistically, that fathers impact especially male children. I, I, I've known a number of guys who, who grew up with no dad, young men, who will, as a way of coping, make fun of it. They have derogatory names for their biological father, and they kind of joke about it. You will never see me laugh about that or enter into that because it's not funny because fathers are important. And the pain and the hurt, whether they even know it or not, in especially the sons, is, is real. And therefore, you won't see me joking about it. And therefore, I will always defend that a child needs both parents and for different reasons. Now, having said that, if you're here today, you don't have a father or your father abandoned the family or, or whatever it might be, I'm not trying to give you grief. I just want you to recognize that there are issues there that you are going to have to come to grips with. Just like everybody has issues, those are your unique issues. What's great about the Bible is it says the Father, God our Father, will become a father to the fatherless. And I believe that while there are some deficits that come along with that, that God is more than able and willing to make those up. And hopefully his body, the men in the body of Christ and the family of Christ can help in that process. But to deny it, just because we're afraid to offend somebody, is to deny the reality. And unless we acknowledge the reality, we can't address it or help or bring wholeness and healing. And so our Father is a very real thing. Now, for those who don't have a, a good image of a Father, what are we supposed to, how are we supposed to come up with that? So last week we looked at uh, Lazarus who um, died, and we saw something about God in the way that Jesus reacted. You remember that? It was only seven days ago. I'm older than you are. My memory remembers it. Okay. So we found out about how God feels about us, the way Jesus reacted to the mourning of the sisters, them being in mourning and their sadness. So this week, we're going to learn something about the Father because Jesus says, our Father, but he has taught us about the Father that he knows. Not the Father that abandoned the family, not the Father that was imperfect, but the Father that he knows, God the Father, our Creator. He knows and he described it in a parable called the parable of the prodigal son, right? You know the parable of the prodigal son, which is misnamed. It's mislabeled. 
because it's not, there's nothing unusual about a prodigal son. That's normal. There's lots of prodigal sons. There's prodigal sons all, there's some prodigal daughters in the room right now probably. It is not unusual. What it is unusual is about the loving, the unconditionally loving and accepting father. And that's the story, and that's the point of the story because he was teaching a bunch of legalistic people, teaching Pharisees who said, if you keep the rules, God's gonna like you. you don't keep the rules, you should be thrown out and, and treated harshly. And here Jesus says to these legalistic types, Hey, listen up. I'm going to tell you about how God really is because you think God is like you. You think he's a rule keeper who tried to look for people messing up and take them down. And all of those of you trying to make money points with God by keeping the rules, you think you're something. Let me tell you what the father's really like. And then he tells a story about the son who asks for his inheritance, goes away, blows it on partying, ends up starving and without any money and decides to come home. And he decides to come home not as a son, he decides to come back to his father just as a lowly servant. If dad will just even let me in on the property to be just a humble employee, then life will be even better. It'll be better than it is right now. And so the shocking part of this story, it, first, is that the father gives him the inheritance. Uh, but culturally, the shocking part is how the dad reacts, responds when he comes home. And that's found in Luke um, chapter 15, and starting in verse 20. And I just want to kind of read that for you. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran uh, to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. By the way, I could do a whole sermon right there on that phrase. I have sinned against heaven and against you. I've not only hurt you relationally, I've been less than God intended me to be, which is what sin is. It goes on. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, by the way, what the father says next is in direct opposition to what the son has just said. He just takes what the son said and goes, nope. And he says, I'm not even worried to be your son. And here's what the father says. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate. We find in this parable that Jesus told what we're supposed to know about God and more specifically about God's character and his di disposition toward us, even though we are frail and, have, and weak and have sinned. And so the first thing, while he was a, a long way off. So this is not a throwaway. This is to tell us something about God, that God is looking for us, is seeking us, is watching for us because he loves us. So the picture in my mind is this happened, uh, I think about Palm Springs, because the Holy Land is not too different from Palm Springs in some ways, uh, much of it, not in the north, but down around Jerusalem, it's, it's pretty arid. And so I think about the father having his little hill, kind of partway, uh, or his little uh, estate partway up a hill, and that every day as he comes around the front porch, he looks out down the driveway in the long road that winds down in the valley, and he's just looking to see if he can see a little, a little puff of dust coming up that somebody's coming, and every day he watches to see if his son is showing up. So oftentimes people have an image of God as this, this mean ogre in heaven waiting for them to mess up so he can smack them down, but that's not the image that Jesus is giving at all. The image here is a God who loves you so much that he watches for you. Any indication that you would turn to him, that you would come home, he is excited about that because he loves us that much. And then when he gets there, the, the most appalling thing probably to the rule keeper types who were listening was, and he ran to him. 
Now, in their minds, they're saying, that's crazy. The father should never run to the son. As a matter of fact, the father should stone the son and have all the neighbors beat him up because he disrespected the family and the father, and he doesn't deserve to be allowed even in the village. That's how they would have viewed it. And yet, in Jesus' parable, he on purpose goes to tweak them. And the father not only was watching for him, but he ran to meet him. He's telling us something. He's telling us how God is toward us. That when we will turn toward God, he will receive us. As a matter of fact, he says he not only ran to meet him, but he hugged him and kissed him. It's like, so in my mind, he runs down this gravel driveway and he sees his son and they run and they meet halfway and he hugs him so hard they trip over a little rock and fall and roll around in the dirt and that's just first chapter Doyle. It's not really in there, but that's how, that's how it looks in my mind because the father is so excited about the son. See, here's all the rule keepers, all the religious types going, well, we got it all figured out. We keep the rules. And, we... and Jesus is going, no, no, God's not excited about your rule keeping. He's excited about one, one, one child who turns back and comes home. And he's just so excited. Because he receives us. And then he starts giving him stuff. It's weird stuff. Like, like he gives him a robe. And again, you know, they're rolling around there, they come back, and, and for whatever reason, when I first began to read this passage, and, and he said he gave him a robe, I think of a bathrobe, I don't know why, <laughs> but that's not the point, the point is, here's the point, remember the son just said, I'm not even worthy of being your son, because I've sinned against you and against heaven, the robe is a symbol that you are accepted back, not as an employee, but as family, you're accepted back. You're welcome home as family. You are not only received, you are restored. You're restored to the family. That's what the robe is symbolic of. And then he gives him a ring. I'm thinking, who cares about jewelry? It's jewelry at a time like this. They'd probably go sell it. That's why he did the last stuff, right? That's not what it's about. The, the ring is, you ever see the thing in the old movies where they, like about old times where they would put it in the wax and it would be a seal? It was, it's what it was. It was a ring that symbolized that they were not only family, but he had the authority and the power to do business on behalf of the family. So he's saying, not only are you received, but you are restored back into partnership in this family mission we have here together. And then he gives them sandals. Sandals, by the way, I don't know if you ever, when I was in college, I lived in a country where it, uh, they still had some of the old world customs and one of the customs was that after a, a woman's husband died and she became a widow, she would wear black. And, and, um, and sometimes it was only for a year, but many of the women were, were black the rest of their lives. And so you would see an older woman in a village and she would be wearing black and you'd know she's she a widow. In the ancient world, one of the things that they would do to signify that they were in mourning was they would take their sandals off and go barefoot. And so when Jesus orders sandals, it's not a, it's not a, a functional thing. It's, it is a symbolic thing. And it is saying, my son who is dead is now alive. The one who was lost is back. Bring the sandals because the time of mourning is over. The time of celebration begins right now. Think about the holidays. Christ has come. Emmanuel, God with us. The time of mourning, of lostness, of being without hope is gone. The time of celebration begins. You see, I think it's incredibly appropriate that people celebrate Christmas. I'm not even upset when pagans celebrate like pagans because, well, they're pagans. 
I think it's an incredible opportunity to say, do you know why you're celebrating? It's not an excuse to drink alcohol. And it's not just because you get off work. You're celebrating because the time of mourning is over. Let's celebrate together. Maybe I can even explain why we're celebrating in this process. The kind of father that Jesus is describing is the kind of father we all want. Whether your earthly father was good or not so good, the perfect father loves you unconditionally and will receive you and restore you, will make you a partner and will rejoice over you. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's the God who has come to us. That's what Jesus was telling us about our Father. So as we think about our Father, what the story is really about is coming home to the Father. It's about the father receiving him home, restoring him to home and to the family. A few moments ago, we watched the video about the veterans, which is powerful. And we know that coming home for many veterans is extremely difficult and really hard. But I think we have maybe something in common with veterans in a small way that we may not realize. We think about the holidays, and it's, I'll be home for Christmas. I'll be home. All right. And you know that song, right? The tune was close. Uh, I'll be home for Christmas, home for the holidays. It's a theme, isn't it? Which, by the way, I can't figure out to this day why my kid's favorite Christmas movie is um, Home Alone. I, I think there's some indication of dysfunction in our family there on that one. Can I suggest to you the reason we want to be home for the holidays is a kind of a reflection of a deeper need that we have? Because we get home, and depending on the level of dysfunction in your family, we all have dysfunction. The greater the dysfunction, the shorter the time period we can be together without it going crazy, right? Uh, some of you, it's an hour, is plenty. Um, for some of you, you can make it two or three days. But we all want that moment still, even if our family's dysfunctional and our parents didn't do a great job and our siblings are out of control and we're the only normal one. <laughs> think about that. Um, we still want that moment, that at-home moment. That's why I had to describe it earlier. We want that moment. But what if we are just having that desire for a moment as a reflection of a desire to live at home, to be at home, to have a life that's at home? What if it's just a little glimpse of what we really want, which is on the deepest level to be at home with the one who created us, to be loved unconditionally by the one who put us here? And not only did he put us here, he knows why we're here what if all of us really just want to be home for Christmas and every other day? The story of the prodigal son is the loving father that let the son come home and be a part of the family. And yes, live happily ever after, it seems. Literally, ever after. <laughs> you see, I think that's why we start with our father, because we all want to go home. Maybe this Christmas you need to, need to come home. Maybe you're here today and you don't even believe there's a God. But you have to be honest, no matter how much you've acquired, no matter how much you've achieved, no matter how much you've tried to deal with the pain and the hurt of your past, if you're really honest, really, really honest, and right now would metaphorically unfold your arms and let me speak to you, you would admit that like me, at the bottom of your heart, there is this gnawing desire for something you haven't had before. 
no matter how much you consume or acquire or achieve, you can't quite get there. And what if that desire is to, like the prodigal son, come home to the God you may not even believe exists, come home to a place you may never have been before, but come home nevertheless to the one who created you, the one who loved you, the one who came to earth, was born of a virgin and died on a cross for you, was resurrected so you could be at home forever. What if that's what we really want in all that we do in the holidays, all we're hoping for? What if that's what we're really seeking? Interesting thing about it, you're not just coming home to your Savior. It says, our Father. You're coming home to his family. Our Father. All who believe in God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ, we are a family. Our Father. You see, the holidays aren't that great if you're by yourself. You can give yourself nice presents and everything. It's still not that great. Because we realize that one time in the year we need, we need each other. You need other people to have great holidays. You just do. What if you need other people to have a great life? <laughs> what if you need each other to be at home with? You see, the Bible says that God's grace is not just given to us in salvation, but it is administered on a regular basis through others in the body of Christ as we administer God's grace to each other. We all need God's grace daily. Our Father... It's an interesting thing about the Lord's Prayer. In the Lord's Prayer, there's no first-person singular pronouns. Listen to this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. What if... The key to an incredible life, a powerful life, is to have a relationship with God and God's people. What if it can't be done any other way? Scripture kind of teaches that. Our Father, our Father in heaven, who art in heaven is the way I learned it. It's a reminder of who God is. You see, in our Father, we understand his, his kind of disposition toward us as a heavenly Father. We understand that he is our Father. In the Bible, it says we can even call him what would be the equivalent of dad or daddy at some point. There is this familiarity, this trust, this, this fatherly concern and security that is supplied. But we're also reminded at the same time that he is in heaven. Our Father, who is eminent, is also transcended. He is near and he loves us, has good intention toward us, but he is all-powerful God Nevertheless, God is not Santa Claus. It is to remind us that God is not some overweight, gray-bearded, grandfatherly type. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Thank you for not laughing as hard as the first service. They were rude. Um, nor is he the man upstairs. He is almighty God, all-powerful, what this tells us is not only does he love us and good intention toward us, but he is powerful enough to make whatever he needs to make happen, happen. And to see what is best for us, even if we're praying for something else, he is almighty and all-powerful. He is near, but he is God. Which causes us to come to him in prayer with reverence and awe and, yes, comfort and ease and familiarity. But not over-familiarity. I'm going to give you a little gospel of Doyle, not the gospel. This is me. That's why I'm stepping away from the Bible. This is me. 
I believe one of the reasons that God reveals himself as father is because there is this thing. And I think it's so important for teenage young men to have a father or a father figure around because there is this, oh, he loves me, he wants what's best for me, but there's a little bit of... That's why the phrase, wait till your father gets home, is powerful, because of this other side. Oh, I know he loves me and what's best for me, but I also know he'll do what is right. And he will bring the hammer down if he needs to. He will take action if he needs to. He is not somebody to be messed with. Do you understand that juxtaposition, those two kind of things? I believe maybe that's why God, and, and I'm not talking about abuse. You know, you understand what I'm saying. I think maybe that's why God reveals himself as Father. Now I'll go back to the Bible. Now, a father whose disposition toward us is favorable, but who is powerful. It's a powerful thing. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed means to be recognized as holy. So, um, I'm just about out of time. I want to give you this because it's really important. Most of us have misunderstood this, including me. It is not saying, God, I recognize your name as holy. It is the first of the six petitions or requests made in the Lord's Prayer. Lord's Prayer covers all areas of our life. But the first three are made to God because they're things that only God can do. And it is not for us. And so they are passive. And what he is saying here is not, we need to recognize God as holy. We do. But it's saying, God, make people know that you are holy, that you are powerful. Make your name known. Make yourself known. It's something he is requesting of God to do. God, make your holiness known. Make your reality, make your glory known to others. Lord, I request that you make yourself known. It's not me saying, God, you're holy, or I'm going to tell everybody you're holy. It's not about what I'm doing. It's about only God can reveal himself. Think about Jesus. Disciples are walking along with Jesus. Jesus does miracles, and he has wisdom. Nobody else has all this stuff. Only, that stuff can only come from God. How did Jesus become of good reputation or of reputation uh, as a great rabbi? Because he was making himself known as a miracle worker, a man of great wisdom. What Jesus is saying, ask God to make himself known. So, well, I, I don't understand a number of years ago, I was sharing, I, 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 don't, I met him at a restaurant, I think, and, uh, and I was traveling and had nothing else to do, and I was with some other pastor friends, and, and um, we were all young guys, and we engaged this guy in conversation, and he and I ended up talking until about three in the morning, and he was a Muslim, and a lot of talking in circles and stuff, and we were both trying to argue other, each other into believing our side of the deal, and at three o'clock in the morning, we both realized this is going nowhere. And so I said, well, before we leave, do you mind if I pray for you? And, and he said, not if you let me pray for you. And I said, well, that'd be great. And he prayed for the infidel. And um, I don't remember what he prayed. But then I prayed. And I do remember what I prayed. And I just simply prayed, because we hadn't convinced each other of anything. And I just prayed this. God, I pray that you will make yourself known to my friend. If you are the God of Scripture, if you're the God who came to earth to die for us so that we could be forgiven, would you make yourself known to my friend? Amen. And we left. I don't know what happened to that guy, but here's what I know. God has the ability to make himself known to that guy. And what the Lord's Prayer is, Lord, make yourself known. And if you choose to do it through me or through our church family 
or however you choose to do it, we're available. But please make yourself known. Let me ask you this question. Do you have somebody in your life that if Jesus, that if God would make himself known to them as the loving father, all-powerful, all-knowing, that could change their life? Is there somebody in your life that if he made himself known to them, it would change their life? I do. And so praying the Lord's Prayer is to enter in to... So uh, there's this guy back in the 1500s when I was a kid, and uh, his name was Blaise Pascal, and, and he was a philosopher and a, and a mathematician, and he, he talked about the dignity of causality. And what he was saying is that when we get to pray, prayers like the Lord's Prayer, we get to enter in to the mission of God's kingdom, of God's invasion of his love and his goodness from heaven to earth. We get to enter in, we get to invite him in and participate in the revolution that Christ came to bring about. Could I encourage you from now until Christmas to pray the Lord's Prayer every day? Could I just encourage you? Either directly, word by word if you want, or in, in each of the sections and the concepts that they refer to, because I believe we're supposed to pray it both ways. But what would it be like to say, God, I want to be a part of what began at the first Christmas, your love invasion, the revolution you came to bring about where men would care less for themselves and their selfishness and would care more about God and each other. What if we prayed that every day and invited him in and we became participants in what he's trying to bring on earth, his kingdom, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your name is holy. You are holy. Make yourself known as the true God. Today, maybe you're here and you don't believe that there's a God or you don't know what relevance that might have to your life. What if there is a God? Would you be willing to just do what I did for my friend, for yourself, and just say, okay, God, I don't believe you're there, but if you are, would you reveal yourself to me? Would you? Would you have the courage to do that? Would you be willing to try it? Don't, by the way, I'm, I'm not saying you're going to hear an audible voice, but you might be surprised how many Christians show up in your life the next week or so. You might be surprised, little, little, my friends in 12-step call them God shots, <laughs> which is funny if you think about it. You might be surprised how many times you see little messages, even bumper stickers or movies or songs that come to mind that go, oh my goodness, that, that's weird. That's why I never know, I never... Would you be willing to pray that? And if you have, and if you are a Christian and you have a friend who needs to know this God who loves us unconditionally, would you pray that for them this week? As you're praying the Lord's Prayer, would you just stop at this point and say, Lord, make yourself known to my friend, my family member, that person that I know you want to change their life. I think prayer is not only a privilege, but it's powerful. And this could be our best holiday season ever if we really begin to understand what it's about and invite God in. Let's pray. Lord, you are good and you are wonderful. You are our loving Father. Lord, some of us here today may or may not believe you exist and yet you still love us. And Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to anybody here today who has the courage to ask, even if they don't believe you're there. All of us have someone, Lord God, who would benefit from knowing their Heavenly Father, being restored and welcomed home into that relationship and into the family. And I pray that we would have the courage to ask that you would reveal yourself to them, that you would make yourself known as holy. Lord God, I pray that you would take these holidays and, and make them hallowed, which means to holify, to make them holy, that you would take these holidays in every one of our life and you would cause them to be holy because they become about something more.
something deeper, something of eternal value. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We're excited about this season. We can't wait to see what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.